is Sit Rep on VFBS with Kate Chabot. Let's talk about ISIS, the conference in London designed to fix Middle East terrorism. Obama tells America what's what, but does he know? Tonight I call on this Congress to show the world that we are united in this mission by passing a resolution to authorize the use of force against ISIS. Why can't the Nigerian government stop Boko Haram and 35 years of sizing up the Royal Navy? Foreign ministers from 21 countries have met in London trying to find a solution to the increasing problem of Islamic State terrorism. They've been looking at ways to cut the flow of money and fighters going into IS. I'm joined today by Michael Stathis, Professor of Political Science and International Relations at the University of Southern Utah, as well as BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Um, Christopher, the focus is Iraq. How is it IS has such control in that country? You have to go back to the war, the great uh, war in Iraq. Um, Saddam Hussein, the enemy, was a Sunni. Majority of people were Shias. When the war ended, the Shias became the government and the Sunnis were set aside. ISIS, or IS, are Sunnis. They therefore got the support from a lot of the villagers. The Shias the Shia government, sent in the Shia army, death squads into Iraqi villages, etc. Therefore, IS gained not just popularity, but it gained territory. And it wasn't until the Peshmerga, the Kurds, came along that it was possible to set up a reasonable opposition to them because the Shia army of Iraq wasn't able to deal with them. Michael Stathis, US Secretary of State John Kerry, clearly taking the lead at this conference. But does America have a working plan to fix what should have been done, arguably at the end of the war in Iraq? Well, at the present time, um, that plan takes two forms. Uh, one, uh, airstrikes uh, against uh, ISIS uh, uh, on a variety of fronts. And uh, secondly, a mission to... Um, bump up the training uh, and preparedness of uh, the military forces uh, in Iraq. Uh, the questions uh, that are plaguing the American people right now, is that going to be enough? Uh, one of the fears uh, facing the American people, uh, and uh, we know the president skirted this in his State of the Union address, um, are those advisors, uh, as we might call them uh, in Iraq, at some point going to become uh, employed uh, as as combat troops. Um, the people of the United States and Congress are not going to be very tolerant um, of any suggestion of re-entering uh, Iraq uh, in a full combat mode. So, uh, whatever plan is going to take place, it is going to be something more limited than that. Christopher, can much be achieved by this conference in London? Um, it's not what you achieve by, for example, saying, right, we've all decided that this is what we're going to do. We turned up this morning, somebody said, we've got any good ideas, here are ours, let's, let's, let's come together. What it is, is getting 20 or so uh, foreign ministers who understand perfectly their own government's position, and some of them don't have positions, they say, look, we're sitting on the fence. But to explain, especially the United States to explain, and two or three European countries to explain, 
this is what we want to do. Uh, and what sort of cooperation will we have? What objection will we have? What diplomatic support we will have in the United Nations for what we're trying to do? But the truth is this. There is no solution that is seen as an obvious workable solution. So we don't expect that. We expect ambition to come uh, from this conference and not much more. Michael Stathis, what are the Americans thinking about the progress or, or any successes of the airstrikes against Islamic State? Um, I, I think the mood is sceptical. Uh, we are hearing uh, scattered reports about the airstrikes, but uh, it's, uh, it's nothing like the news reporting that took place uh, in 2003 following the uh, uh, the infamous invasion uh, of Iraq, where it seemed like uh, every bomb that was dropped uh, was being filmed or commented uh, upon. Uh, and uh, uh, that is a mystery. I don't know why the press is uh, not more involved in this, but uh, uh, that uh, that is certainly uh, a facet, I think, of the limited action. Now, one other point here. We mentioned that the American plan involves... Uh, uh, continued bombing and, of course, ramping up of, uh, uh, of training. But referring back to the State of the Union address, uh, President Obama uh, was yeah, we'll, we'll be very talking about pointed. that in some detail in, little, in a moment, yes. Uh, well, he emphasized very much the, the need for uh, increased uh, diplomacy in terms of this situation and a variety of other concerns uh, in the world. Um, uh, whether he was pointing at today's conference uh, directly or not uh, is, is unclear, but almost certainly this is where diplomacy comes into play, mm. and it is vital. Christopher, uh, Syria is not represented at, the, represented at these talks, and however unpalatable the idea may be, does it need to be? Um, it doesn't need to be because it, people would be in opposition to it and also you wouldn't find that uh, uh, President Assad would be able to come. Uh, the difficulty is is that the uh, certain what we used to call the Western allies uh, signed up for the opposition or part of the opposition, which hasn't worked properly, and therefore they picked the wrong side. So Syria doesn't actually matter. What is the, if you like, the shadow over this whole thing is that we think of Syria, Iraq... Yemen, we can talk about that as well as being difficult places to be at the moment for uh, for strategists. Until you hear, there's a man called uh, Abu Muhammad Al Adnani. He is part of the whole IS setup. It is he who, back in September last year, said, "Listen, forget Yemen, forget Iraq, forget um, uh, Syria. If you are one of us, go out and kill in your own capital." i.e. Paris. And that is the thing which at this conference they may have grand ideas of what to do actually in Middle East territory itself but not for the problem when it becomes scattered and remote control. I mean, the, these people meeting today would forget Yemen at their peril, some arguing that there's an even bigger problem there. It's a huge problem. I mean, at the moment, we don't even know whether the, uh, whether, whether the, the president, uh, Mansir uh, uh, Hadi, is actually in control of his own palace. Just, I mean, just he's briefly in the palace. bring us up to date what's happened. OK, you, in, in Yemen, you have uh, two groups. Again, one Sunni and one Shia-based. Um, there's a family called the, uh, if you like, a tribe called the, the Houthi. And they are Shia-based. They are in a position now, they've terrorized a lot of the country. They've taken over parts of the army. They control parts of Sa'ana, the, the capital. And they put the, the president into his palace. Across the water, you've got the Saudis. Now, the Saudis 
are that the monarchy is again they are sunny these are the guys that they fear most of all who could can take hold of uh, of yemen are not sunnis they're shias and they fear that that could spread into saudi arabia what, can it, what kind of implications could all this have for, for Al-Qaeda and its base there in Yemen? Because Al-Qaeda moved from what we would call uh, Eastern Asia. They moved from Afghanistan, Pakistan, etc., in, in, in large numbers for an operational base in Yemen itself. And if you talk to people in Paris, you talk to the CIA now, and they are saying that that, that is the biggest threat, is the organisation that could come to, from there and could set up terrorist organisations on their own in other capitals of the Western world. Well, Michael Stathis, you did mention the State of the Union address earlier, and President Obama has delivered it this week, as well as declaring an end to the financial crisis. He reiterated his foreign policy objectives, including the fight against Islamic State. Now, this effort will take time. It will require focus. But we will succeed. And tonight, I call on this Congress to show the world that we are united in this mission, by passing a resolution to authorize the use of force against ISIL. So let's look at some of those policy objectives in more detail. Um, he says the shadow of crisis is past. Uh, Michael Stathis, he means the economy more than homeland security, didn't he? Well, I think in this speech, um, the, the main thing that uh, he wanted to put forth to the American people uh, was an attempt to boost confidence in terms of domestic economic concerns. And in fact, great progress has been made on that. Uh, and it could be said that, uh, well, uh, you know, something of uh, the veil of trouble has uh, been lifted here. But uh, another thing I think he was alluding to but was not very specific is that that sense uh, has changed with the end of the combat missions uh, in Iraq uh, several years ago and recently in uh, Afghanistan. This um, is seen as a great relief uh, to, uh, uh, to the people of the United States, even as American involvement against uh, ISIS is being ramped up and efforts against uh, al-Qaeda remain very serious. And of course now uh, we uh, have these reports from um, uh, Yemen of uh, well, uh, what might be called uh, the uh, imminent uh, uh, fall of that government. Mm. Uh, how long did it take him to get on to foreign policy then, Michael? It did take a little while. But again, uh, the State of the Union address uh, normally does focus, uh, uh, if not primarily, to a great extent uh, upon uh, domestic uh, affairs, and in this case, uh, economic concerns. Uh, and. This speech had very much to do with the split between uh, President Obama and Congress and between Democrat and uh, Republican. And uh, their focus at this point in time uh, is uh, very much on the economy. Mm. And uh, we all know that famous phrase, it is the economy, stupid, and that just has to be focused mm. on uh, up front. But a great deal of the speech did turn to foreign affairs. Christopher, uh, Michael mentioning there that he really did seem to want to draw a line under the campaigns in Iraq and Afghanistan. Two years to go before the presidential election, would Congress even let him take American troops back to the Middle East and Afghanistan if necessary? Well, uh, one, he wouldn't want to go back in the way he went before. Uh, secondly, Congress wouldn't, and there are legal reasons for this as well as anything else. But the point is, America cannot get out of Afghanistan so easily. They've still got, uh, on a division size in Afghanistan, they've still got people in, 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 in Iraq, and they've still got 
just as other countries have, such as the, the United Kingdom have, they've got sort of commitments to carry out sort of bombings, etc., whatever their, whatever their facility. The thing is, for the moment, uh, I think that President Obama's legacy is going to be not sort of uh, uh, care, not sort of uh, Medicaid, Medicaid, it's not going to be child poverty, it's not going to be anything else. It's the fact that he did what he said he would do in the, in the first place, and that's bring America out of Afghanistan. Indeed. And Michael Stathis, as a result of that, do you think the electorate in Capitol Hill are going to be looking for a financial peace dividend, in other, in other words, a major reduction in the US defence budget to pay for almost everything else? Uh, not really, uh, especially given the events in Paris. Uh, I think there's hope and expectation that the levels of commitment uh, compared with those in Iraq and Afghanistan are going to be more limited uh, in reaction to ISIS, al-Qaeda, the Taliban, Boko Haram, even Iran. But, uh, but even so, I think there's a realization, um, uh, uh, indeed maybe even a commitment among the American people the United States must be part of a concerted international effort to deal with these situations. Uh, it is in the vital interest of the United States to uh, uh, to do so. So in this sense, uh, uh, we might save a little bit of money. Uh, we're certainly not going to commit to something like the debacle of 2003, but there is going to be a, uh, a commitment. All right. Michael Stath is Professor of Political Science and International Relations at the University of Southern Utah. Thank you for your time today. Sit rep with Still to come, is there a military solution to Nigeria's problems? This is BFBS. Sit rep. Sir John Chilcott, the chairman of the inquiry on the Iraq war, says that his report is nowhere near ready for publication. Now, Christopher, does it matter? It does matter to two sections. It matters politically because the report was commissioned, and therefore where is it? Although I have to remind us that uh, the, the Savile inquiry, uh, say, in North, into Northern Ireland, uh, took much longer to put together. There is another side of it which is, is, is a greater puzzle, and that is that uh, a lot of the, um, the families of of guys that were killed in, 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 in Iraq, they've got a position saying, listen, we want closure. Now, it's very difficult for the politicians to understand what that sort of closure is, but the greatest problem is the inefficiency of the Chilcot inquiry itself. It should have got further. A huge task, though, wasn't there? And there was this question of the disclosure of these conversations, which held it up at the end of last year. Well, it was, but it was also another part of it. Uh, so you get the you, you finish taking evidence a couple of years ago, and then you write the report, and somebody's name is in the report, a load of people's names in the report, and they say, you know, you've been fanged in this, quite frankly. And they need time to prepare, though, And you've got to be, and um, it could be anything, and they say, you, you know, you said I said this in so-and-so, I wasn't even here, or, or, or whatever, so that is fundamentally wrong. But there's also uh, the other side of it, and I think that there is the, is the difficulty of the, of the committee itself. It, uh, the record probably will, will end up showing that it wasn't that efficient. Um, it's also struck by uh, so illness, and so it's had a very, very difficult time. But the point is, is it important when it comes out? It's going to be a million words. Somewhere in the million words is going to be a reason why the United Kingdom will probably never go to a war like that again. Will we ever see it, this report? Yeah, we might see it. Uh, we might even see it by the end of this year. But I seem to remember being told by John Kilcott that, uh, Chilcott that that was the case about three years ago. So you're not going to put a bet on? Oh, I would a bet on, of course. <laughs> Um, exercise Allied Spirit is underway. 
what is it exactly? Yeah, bring in the Canadians, bring in the uh, uh, the, uh, the the Brits, etc. It's part. It's a small uh, command and control, almost a sort of a, an ex, uh, uh, exercise to see if you can work together. Command and control communications. Twice service. Uh, yep, all, all services plus intelligence plus also it would be very very an increasingly important uh, met weather. Uh, this is a big, big thing in exercise planning at the moment. What is the weather condition likely to be? What is the uh, long-term? Is it easy to prophesize? Uh, and what happens if the weather goes wonky? What happens to the exercise? What would happen to so your military exercises? So what kind of things exercises? are they doing exactly? Oh, oh, for example, well, I mean, you, you, you plan an exercise. You say, right, we're going to move, used to be called orange forces and blue forces, whatever. You want to move large assets. Large assets can be anything at sea. They can be armoured. Uh, across land, etc. And suddenly the weather goes r- uh, bad, and suddenly moving ships is okay, you can do that. But in support of those ships, you've got to have the land logistics or the, or the landings, and because the weather has changed, you can't do it as planned. And it's the idea how you bring all these people together so everybody knows what they're doing, they start talking on the same wavelengths, literally on the same wa- wavelengths, within the same policy decisions. Uh, I suppose a pretty important exercise then. It's a very it's, it's an important exercise. It's not a fashionable exercise. It's not a big headline grabbing exercise. Extremely important. Doesn't matter all your intentions. Unless you figure out how to do it, you're, you're not fixed. Now to the continuing mayhem in Nigeria. The Islamist terrorist group Boko Haram appears to go from what it would see as strength to strength, plundering and killing wheresoever it chooses. The Nigerian army is incapable of stopping this advance, but why? Colonel James Hall was until recently the military attaché to the UK High Commission in Nigeria, and he joins us now. Good to talk to you today. At one time, the Nigerian army was the envy of Africa. What's happened? Yeah, it's a horrible question to answer. Um, I, I mean, sadly, things have declined pretty badly over the last 20 or 25 years. Um, I mean, the Nigerians were and to some extent still are a really very competent force um, and they they did a lot of good work around Africa in peacekeeping operations and, and did very well um, but sadly things have declined pretty steadily and I think there are, there are two sides to this so the, on the one hand is just a straightforward equipment issue um, and as so often that's very much a government issue of, of who provided the resources who's been doing the procurement the other side of it, of course, is training, um, and I'm afraid that the standards of performance of the troops has fallen pretty significantly as their equipment has got worse, and I think that's a cultural issue which they're finding it very difficult to deal with at the moment um, and will take some time to fix. Is it all too easy, though, to just say, send in the British military to sort it out? It's far too easy, and um, it's not right, uh, and um, if we were to do that without thinking it through, um, we'd probably, I think do very little help um i mean firstly we're not the only ally that the nigerians have um of course you know primarily ourselves um, that they're, they're, they're they are very generous to the british and like the british and, and want to stay our friends and therefore rather frustrated by our lack of assistance but they're also used to working closely with the americans and increasingly because we're not giving them what they really want which is um equipment uh, particularly lethal equipment, um, they're turning to other allies that we probably wouldn't want them to be with so closely, the U- Ukrainians, the Russians, the Chinese, um, Israelis and others. And so I think the British have a huge part to play in helping with this, but the idea that we're going to send troops in onto the ground is, is not good, actually, and um, and I think would, would go down very badly 
across the country and very specifically badly up in the areas that Boko Haram is active in. Christopher Lee. Um, Colonel, there's, there's another point to this, isn't there? When you, uh, for example, you get weapons from other countries, along with the weapons come the advisors, and therefore you start <clears throat> you start to create, in, in, in overall terms, a sort of confusion and an influence which is better not to have. Well, I think that's been true in other countries, hasn't it? I'm not sure that that's been so in Nigeria. And the Nigerians are, are, you know, let's be quite clear about Nigeria. It's a country with huge challenges, but its its military and its government is actually very competent when it wants to be. These are hugely educated, very bright people, um, and they're very proud, and quite rightly so, of their own sovereignty and, and not willing to give it away. And in the past, there have been military advisors. Of course, they have. And we've provided some of them ourselves, but not in huge numbers for a good many years. And you know, Israelis are around and about, um, don't see much of them. The Russians, I think, have been increasingly training uh, Nigerians on their own territory, but haven't been in the country in large numbers. So I don't think so far we've seen floods of, of military advisers or indeed commercial advisers coming in to support them. And it may be that that should be happening. Um, and I'm certainly clear that what shouldn't be happening is we shouldn't be bringing in rifles and weapon systems and actually doing the fighting for them. I think we're not at that stage and I don't think the political situation or social situation would benefit from it. Uh, what, what was the nature of your work? What was your focus when you were the military attaché to the UK High Commission there? Well, um, first thing to say is that the relationship um, is, is very friendly. Uh, um, it, it wasn't always easy, um, but the Nigerians want to be friends. The Nigerian military specifically wants to be friends with the British military. They they are very clear that, they, that, that their history and their traditions lies with the British, um, and that's where they look, and that's that's how they talk, that's how they think. I have to say that I think they, they don't understand the modern British armed forces terribly well. And Why I is that? Well, they've been they've been isolated from us for a very long time. I mean, it's you know, 1961 independence is a long time ago, and for much of that period, um, military relationship has been extremely limited by the existence of, of uh, up until the turn of the the, the millenni- millennium has been limited by the existence of military governments. Um, so uh, there's a there's a lot of misunderstanding. There's a sort of a great sense of loyalty and friendship, but uh, but I think a genuine misunderstanding about how modern. British and indeed Western militaries work. Um, that's going to take some fixing. Christopher. So the, the point about, it, we, we get back to the so-called terrorist organisations um, mm. and it's the, the ability to perceivably do more or less what they want to do because of the weakness of uh, the Nigerian forces at the moment. How do you restructure those Nigerian forces and who should do it? And what where does that fit in then with the the fact that it's a regional problem as much as it is anybody else's. Well, there's about a thousand questions in there, Christopher. I, um, I, mean, I think that's our Christopher. <laughs> the, the first thing to say is that I'm not convinced that Boko Haram. I mean, one shouldn't look at Boko Haram and see direct comparisons with anything else um, in the world. It's not a terrorist organisation now, in the, and it's not actually the same organisation that it was four or five years ago when I first um, started to tangle with it it's it's become a paramilitary force and a paramilitary force if you want comparisons it's probably got more in common with the lord's resistance army than say um, isis so that's that's the first thing i think you know the the the, it's not just the nigerian military problem either i mean the nigerians are not naive about this they recognize that actually the police force should have a lead the the lead it's on their own territory they have their own internal security agencies that, that need to be active and they also perfectly well understand that there is a social economic political piece to this who should be doing it well 
very simple, and they know this. It's them. No, nobody else um, should be getting on with it. Are there other nations out there in Africa that could help them? Well, I think probably so. I think the Chadians are actually pretty good at this mm. stuff. The Cameroonians are trying pretty hard. But one mustn't be naive. The political relationship between these countries is, is not easy. Mm. And um, and Nigerian sense of pride and its willingness to allow other people to tangle on their sovereign territory is pretty limited or has been in the past. And, you know, frankly, we should sympathise with that. It's their country and we wouldn't have wanted Americans rolling in onto Northern Ireland and I don't suppose they want us or anybody else rolling into Northern Nigeria. All right, Colonel James Hall, thank you very much for your time today. That was Colonel James Hall who was the military attaché to the UK High Commission in Nigeria. Maritime Books, the company that publishes the annual Royal Navy warships and auxiliaries after 35 years under one roof, is up for sale. The man who started it, Lieutenant Commander Mike Critchley, joins us now. Hello to you. 35 years ago, quite a different Navy. What was it like then and what's changed? Well, the Cold War was on was the big one, of course, and the Navy was really very big and young people were very keen to join... um, and we sailed around the world fulfilling the commitments of the day that the the government gave us um we went away for a long period of time my first ship was 18 months uh, today of course they go for four months and come back to a guard and great celebrations uh that's the way the world has changed not particularly the navy um no regrets what you do at 18 and what you do at 28 38 etc all very different aren't they Mm. Even then, one of the major debates was whether the Navy would have an aircraft carrier again. That's right, and the debate still goes on. Um, I, I was very fortunate, very proud to have served in the old Ark Royal, not the one that went for scrap a year or two ago. And hmm. as a 21-year-old, to be driving that around the oceans uh, on my own um, was really quite something. You know, manpower was actually short at that time, so um, they were having to use us junior officers um, in a different capacity would you find them employed today Christopher tell me Mike if you were joining uh, the Navy today uh, you probably wouldn't look back and say oh I wish I was joining the Navy but what sort of Navy do you think they would be joining today well a very different one much much smaller as we all know Um, the priorities don't seem to be the same today. Well, they're not. Um, what are the priorities, would you say, today? Well, it's all about, uh, you know, Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, which are well landlocked. But, I mean, the Navy, uh, in my opinion, has to defend these islands. We still import 95% of our raw material. Every 20 hours, a gas tanker arrives in Milford Haven to keep the nation going. And, and keeping those lifelines open, I think, is the Navy's major job it's it's not about trident submarines it's not about aircraft carriers it's just keeping the lights on uh it's got to be the first priority if if Mm -hmm. you're far more wealthy than we are um yes you can do all these other things but really we've got to live under the american umbrella um you know they have 11 strike carriers Uh, we might put a 12th one in and you know all the arguments about the lack of aircraft it's all about money in this day and age in a peacetime environment. And, and what do you think today's new recruits will be doing in about 10 to 20 years' time? That's crystal ball-gazing stuff, isn't it? Um, will we still be at peace? They'll be doing similar things than we're doing today. 
um, but we'll still be an island nation. We've still got to get our food and raw materials here. And one would like to think of the government of the day in 10 or 20 years' time will give it the priority that mm. it doesn't get at the moment. It's not a vote catcher. You know, talk about the NHS if you want to get re-elected. Don't start talking about defence. It's very expensive and it doesn't get many votes. Uh, the Navy, all about heroes from Nelson onwards. Uh, do you have one? Oh, I'd put uh, Lord, Lord Lewins, Terry Lewin, who was my boss years ago, who got me going in this business, which has been very successful. I say got me going. He encouraged me. A great man. Um, I admired him greatly. actually went to his funeral, which I've never done for a senior officer before, and definitely one of my heroes. Christopher? Yeah, I put him right at the top. Um, a rem- remarkable man. Do you know, I think he was in a young captain in naval planning, and he was designing or helped to design the new aircraft carrier, which they didn't dare call an aircraft carrier because the politicians didn't like it. They called it, they might kind of three-deck cruiser three or something. Three-deck cruiser, that's how they yeah. got it, yeah. And then later on, by the time they actually got it, his wife launched it, I think. He was an mm. admiral. That's how long the Navy takes to put together. Yes. Well, I mean, are, are the carriers today a good idea? I mean, many people would say it was a Gordon Brown job creation exercise for a site dockyard in his constituency. <laughs> um, Let, let's, par- let's park that idea for this week. Lieutenant Commander Mike Critchley, thank you so much for your time today. That's all we have time for this week. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can follow us at BFBS SITREP. Remember, you can listen again on our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Bye-bye now. Digital radio, FM and satellite TV in the UK. Online and on air. Around the world. This is the Forces Station. BFBS. BFBS.